Good morning, everybody. You can find a seat. Uh, we're going to be in finishing up 2 Timothy today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy into chapter 3, going into chapter 4. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you don't have your Bible, you can go online on your phone. If you go to our live page, uh, which you can find on the webpage, and um, if you go there, you'll find where you can click to see the scriptures or scripture links. You can click and follow along uh, there. Um, we've been in the midst of our series for the last several weeks in the book, 2 Timothy. Um, we're going to continue that and finish it today. And as, I, as we've thought through this, and I've said it each week, and there's new people, so I want to catch people up. You have to remember, this book is written by Paul, who, Paul the Apostle of the Old Testament, who is radically transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. His life was turned upside down. He was someone who was murdering and killing Christians, thinking he was doing God's will by doing that. And became someone who became a Christian and then was killed by those same people that were killing the Christians because he gave his life to that. So this is a guy that if you want to listen to somebody whose life was turned upside down by the book, by the gospel and the, and the scriptures and understanding what they really meant when he thought he knew what they meant, it's this guy. And he's writing this letter to this young guy, Timothy. Timothy, most scholars believe, was probably in his 20s at this time. So if you're a college student, this would be like Paul writing you a letter. He's writing this to you. He's saying to this young man, Timothy, who has probably traveled with him since his teenage years, planting churches and going out into the world to make known this, this person, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to earth to tell people that he is the God of the Old Testament, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, who saves that's what he was out doing. And Timothy was following Paul everywhere. Now Paul, this is one of his last letters he writes. Some scholars believe it was his last letter he wrote before he's executed. Because he was being persecuted. And he's in prison. And so Paul is, is in a place, he's in a prison. He's writing to this young man, Timothy, who has been faithful to stay at the church plant in Ephesus. When it's been bad, when it's been rough, when everything's gone south, faithful Timothy has stayed. I don't know about you, but if, if you had someone that you highly respected, loved, a family member who was in trouble, isn't there a longing in you to want to go visit them? Isn't there a longing in you? You want to go see them? You want to go encourage them? And Timothy's like, I can't. I got to stay here and do what God's asked me to do. And I know that's what Paul wants because in his first letter that he wrote Timothy, he told Timothy, stay. You need to pour your life into those people. Don't worry about me. God has me. And now he's writing his last letter. And when we come to the end of the letter, Paul finally says, please come and see me. I'm coming to the end. This is my last days. It's over for me. And that's what this letter is. And it's also a letter that Paul is writing to tell Timothy, your last day is coming too. Just like everybody else's because there's going to come a day when Christ comes back or you're going to die. And your job, Timothy, my job, our job as believers is to get ourselves ready for that day. Just like a bride would get herself ready for a wedding. That's our job, is to get ourselves ready for this incredible moment when we're going to see the person like Timothy is getting ready to see Paul face to face, and he's excited, and I want to go see him. That's supposed to be our heart for Jesus. 
And for most of us and for me growing up, it was about adding Jesus to my life as just another relationship so he would meet my needs and give me what I wanted. It wasn't a getting ready to surrender at an altar to him. To say, I, you are, I am yours, I surrender, I give myself, it's over. And that's what Paul's writing to this young man, Timothy. So if you're a young person especially, which I believe young is 45 and under, right? <laughs> Sorry if you didn't make that cut. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if, you're, if you're a young person, this letter is like right to the heart of the matter about our world. And as Paul wraps up what we've been teaching, man, he doesn't pull any punches. And I want you to know that this week, I've really thought a lot about this because this week I lost someone very close to me, my Uncle Charles. My Uncle Charles was a committed Christian man. He didn't fit the, the mold of manliness that most people think. He was a musician, but he was the most kind, loving, caring person you could ever meet. And he died this week to go home, and it was his last day. And he's with his Savior, and he's with Jesus, and there's rejoicing, I know, and, and there's, there's no doubt for me that that's where he is, because that's how he lived his life, because he wanted to be ready for that last day, and his kids know that. And there's a confidence that when you come to your last day, there's a confidence for others when you've lived your life in love with this Savior, that people can sit back and go, we know right where he's at, she's at, because of the life they lived through the power of God, you can't do it on your own. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. And so today, here's what I want to ask. In light of the fact that our last day is coming, could be tomorrow, an asteroid could hit and we're done. Could be you just get an illness, a car accident, you could fall and slip on the ice and bump your head and you're done. It can happen, it happens every day. One of the things that Paul says as he comes to the, this last chapter is this phrase, and he says it a couple of times, and he says, but as for you, as for you, there's a world out there that's doing their thing. There are people that do their thing, but Timothy, as for you, as for me, but as for you, what are you going to do? But as for you is what he says to this young man, Timothy, as he finishes his letter. Look, you got to remember, when Paul wrote this letter, they didn't have a post office or email. When he wrote this letter, it took probably months for the letter to get to Timothy. Which means, when Timothy got the letter, he would not have known if Paul was still alive. Well, when Timothy got the letter, he wouldn't have known if that was it, because he was on death row. And so you have to remember that, that when Timothy's reading this, but as for you, it's like, wow, I hope he's still there when I get to Rome. But if he's not, at least I have this letter. I have this life he lived as a gift to me that I'm ready for whatever I face. It's a beautiful picture of how relationships should work and how the church should work in our day. We covered these things. We talked about Paul in chapter 1 talking about guarding the faith. And really he was talking about guarding the grace of God. Guarding the truth about who God is and his love and his grace that Christ died. And we can't work our way to get to heaven. 
We surrender to him and he gives us and lavishes us with his grace. And then our response to that, like any rational person, person would be gratitude, which the word grace has gratitude in it. I mean, any, any rational person, when someone does something absolutely amazing to you, it overwhelms you, you tell people about it, and you, become, you just become different. It humbles you because of it. We talked about being faithful, men and women, but specifically Paul calling out men and saying, men, you need to step up to be faithful. And not faithful as in do all this stuff, but be faithful to me and let me live through you. And then we talked about the words of truth, that scripture, that if we don't even know what we're doing. As for you, we don't even know what we're doing if we don't understand that we have this incredible book, this gift called the Bible, that is the most amazing historical document on the face of the planet. Listen to last week's sermon. And he goes through all of this, and it's absolutely astonishing. And he continues in chapter 4 to talk about the word of truth. The word of truth, the scriptures. You see, if there's a word of truth that Paul's talking about, that means there's a lot of words of lies, right? So yesterday we had a show choir competition, and it's epic. If you've never been to one, you have no idea until you go, and then you're like, oh my goodness. I mean, it's crazy. We were there till about 1.30 last night tearing down a ginormous stage and light. I mean, it's just nuts. Got home and got ready. And as I was thinking this morning and I was reading back over my notes, I thought to myself, I ate a lot of food yesterday. I did. I was trying to remember what all I ate and I couldn't remember. That's when you know you ate too much, when you can't even remember what you ate. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Susan's like, I can help you. I saw you. She only saw me eat from one room. There were two rooms with food in them and I kept going back and forth to find the best stuff. You know what I mean? It was awesome. But here's the deal. As I was eating, whenever you're eating at a potluck or things, stuff's been fixed for you, you always have in your back of your mind, like, what's in this, right? Like, who fixed this? There's always that little question mark, you know? And so it's like by faith. It's like, it looks good. Last guy's eating it. He's not dead. I'll take some, right? And then you think even some of you, some of you even think, and if it doesn't kill me, it's all right. I'll just build immunity to something, right? Some of you have thought that. You know you have. Okay? And so here I am eating this food. And here's the key. If we don't believe that God's word is the absolute truth and we don't understand that, that we have to interpret the lies all around us by what he says about himself because he's trying to get us ready for the best day ever to be with him. If we don't understand that, then it's kind of like you go up, and I've shared this before, but you go up to eat some brownies, and I look at you and I'd be like, it's okay, I only put 1% dog poop in it. It's fine. The other 99%'s great. They're all the right ingredients. I just, one little teaspoon of dog poop. That was it. It's only nine, it's just 1%. It's all right. They're good. Have some. You'd be like, ooh, no. Why didn't you just not tell me and then I'd eat it anyway and just be happy? Now I have to know. But see, that's the kind of the way we are as it relates to the word of God. Is we'd rather just be ignorant and not know. Than see that it's God's gift to ask us to understand the world we live in and to confront the lies. And sometimes have to deal with them in a way that seems disgusting and hard and difficult. But we got to do it. Because it's the truth. 
And that's what he's finishing up his letter to Timothy with. He says this in 2 Timothy 3, 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. Let me ask you, do you firmly believe? I'm not saying that you don't have doubts. Everyone has doubts. Every biblical character came to typically multiple times of doubt where they just said, is is this it? Is this real? I I hope, because if it's not, I don't know what else I'm going to do. You see that in Moses. You see that in David. You see that in almost every biblical, Peter, even in Paul. He says, we're to be pitied. I'm, I'm to be pitied if I'm wrong. Like, Everybody deals with this, but what, what do you firmly believe on? But as for you, what do you firmly place your hope in? Is it your past, your stories? Is it something else? He says, look, you know those who taught you. He says, Timothy, you had, a, you had an incredible grandmother. You had an incredible mom who, who taught you the scriptures. They took you to synagogue. We don't know where, Peter, or where Timothy's dad was. But this mother poured and this grandmother poured their lives into this young man. So he was ready when Paul showed up to go with Paul. He was ready to follow Paul and Paul was amazed by him. He had not found anybody like Timothy. And he goes on, he says, and you know that from childhood, childhood you've known the sacred scriptures. You've seen since you were a kid that these are special words. They're sacred words. They're beautiful words. Man, you've known that. You haven't, you keep clinging to that, Timothy. That's why I brought you along with me because I can't find people that believe that very easily in my day. And when I find it, it just shows me God's all over that person's life. He goes on and he says, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, the way to salvation, to be saved from the lies, from the present darkness, for, to be saved for a marriage to the Lamb one day in heaven. That's what we're being saved for. There's a lot of conversation about saving yourself to marriage in our culture today. I wish we'd apply that to meeting Jesus. Not just to getting a spouse. Because it's way bigger than getting a spouse. To save yourself for him. To say no to the things of this world that he says say no to. So that one day you can stand before him and be like, I'm here. But you don't do that in your own effort. It says you do that through his word. And his word comes through the power of the Holy Spirit because of your surrender to him. He gives you the gift to do it. He buys you the supplies. It's not you trying to buy the dress and buy everything. He's providing it all and just asking us to respond to the provision. And if you show up in sweats and a t-shirt, he's going to have a question for you. Didn't I buy you everything you needed? Yeah, but these are really comfy. (laughs) He goes on and he says, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. It's inspired. God inspired every author to write the words down that they saw, that impacted them. And he said, they're inspired by God and they're profitable. Let me ask you, what do you see as profitable? For those of you who are in your 20s, like Timothy at this point, you're probably doing something that you see as very profitable. Working a job. Going to school. You're waiting for the payoff, the profit of that. Do you see that the scripture's profitable? 
That this relationship with Christ is the most profitable, profitable thing you could ever have? He goes on and he says, it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in what the right thing to do is. That's righteousness. So that the man or woman of God may be complete. That means ready on the day you get to be with him. Equipped for every good work. I mean, read that again to yourself. You don't have to read it out loud. Just read that again, how incredible it is. He says, it's profitable for teaching. We loved, we'll be taught all kinds of stuff. And the second we, you know, scripture starts teaching us, we start making every excuse why we don't have to listen to it. You will take tests from professors that you hate on material you don't care about to, to pass the test. And then when, when God gives you that material, like, I don't have to do that. <laughs> why? Because you don't see it's profitable. I don't see how that's going to profit me. I don't want to do it. He goes on and he says, man, for rebuking. A rebuke is something you, that is, is firm. You're not going to do that. No. And here's why. That's a rebuke. It's like you're going to rebuke and say no. Not going to happen. And here's why. You don't be mean. It's not abusive. It's just like there's a line drawn. There's a line that we see in Scripture you can't cross on these issues. And I have to speak to you about that because I care about your soul. That's rebuking. Correcting and then training. He says... The word's there to correct us and to help us correct one another. So that you can look at someone and say, I think, I think you may be incorrect. Or you can encourage someone by saying, you're really correct. I just want to encourage you. You're doing a great job. And he goes on, he says, training for the right thing to do. How many of you have ever struggled? You don't have to raise your hand, just think. How many of you have ever struggled with what's the right thing to do? Or here's a better question, especially for you young people. I just want to know what God's will is for my life. You know what you're really asking? What I've found almost 90 plus percent of the time when people ask, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. They don't really care what God has to say about how you need to do life every day. There's a specific situation they want an answer to. They've already decided what they want. They've gone to God and they've said, now God, tell me if it's not right. And if it's not, I'm going to do it anyway. Because God says what's most right is our sanctification, becoming more holy. Becoming more like him, being ready to meet him, because we're like him. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And then he says, so that you can be complete. How many of you feel incomplete? There's just something missing. There is. Blaise Pascal, one of the most famous scientists of the 20th century, said that in every man is a God-shaped hole or vacuum that only God can fill. There, there's this hole that only God can fill it. And you will fill it with, with whatever your God is. If it's relationships, you'll go to one relationship after another to fill that hole. If it's education, you'll go to one education, one degree after another to fill that hole. If it's money, what food, whatever it is, you're going to find something to fill that hole until you finally say, I'm done. I can't do this. I can't fill this. God has to make me complete. He has to equip me for every good work. And what is a good work? How do you know you're doing good or not doing good? Those are hard questions. Unless you know the word of God. 
then they become a lot easier. And then you also know that when you mess up, you can start back at the beginning and he'll teach you and he'll rebuke you, he'll correct you, he'll help you be right. He'll put you right back on the same path so that you can do the good thing that he wants you to do. He goes on and he says, I solemnly charge you. Again, it's like, but as for you, before God in Christ Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. There's a judgment coming. We live in a culture that says you cannot judge. I'm not sure if I mentioned this last week, but there was an article I read. The millennial generation, 49% of millennials, and this is a reputable survey, 49% of millennial generations, and I'm not blaming them in this. They've been taught this. Go back to the, what we just read about teaching, rebuke, correcting. That's our job. That's what he was telling Timothy. Timothy, your job is to do this to get the next group ready. And we didn't do that. So 49% of millennial believers, millennial Christians right now, believe that evangelism is morally wrong. 49% of evangelical believing millennials believe it's wrong to impose your beliefs on someone else. What in the world have we been teaching? God does nothing in the Bible but impose himself. Have you not noticed? Like the whole book is just like God imposing himself when you don't want him there. Paul's on the road to Damascus, gonna go kill Christians, and God just shows up in a bright light in person's like, Saul, Saul, he falls off his horse, he's blinded. He didn't ask for any of that. <laughs> he imposes himself because he cares. He looks at the brokenness. He looks at your brokenness and mine, and he's like, I care so much about you. I'm going to keep imposing myself on you because I love you too much not to. He watches us be addicts of everything, and like a good family member, a good father, he's like, don't do that. I'm going to come back in and try to rescue you from that, and we keep going back to another addiction. He looks, he's like, there is a judgment coming for people. Timothy, you know this. There's a judgment for you and I. There's the judgment of whether you know Jesus Christ or not. And the scriptures say for those of us who are believers, there'll be a judgment about our works. So there's a judgment as it relates to getting into heaven. And then Jesus will judge the works of believers and reward people accordingly. Now, is being in heaven great? Is being a part of a family and living in paradise awesome? Absolutely. But it's also even more awesome when God says, hey, these are the other things I want you to do. I want you to serve me in doing it. Thank you. That's why around, we'll read this in a minute. That's why around the throne of heaven are the elders and the martyrs. People that were martyred for their faith, they gave everything. Ready for this? To say it was wrong to not believe in Jesus. The reason you have a martyr is because they didn't, find it morally objectionable to share their faith. That's why they got martyred. He goes on and he says, because of his appearing in kingdom. He's like, you got to remember, remember, Timothy, in these last days, people want to say Jesus has already appeared. He's not going to appear. I'm telling you, he is going to appear. And when he does, he's going to bring his kingdom and it's done. And we still have time, Timothy, to reach people. We still have a ministry to do. We still have a life to give to others to help them know who he is. And he goes on and he says, persist in it. I love this. Whether convenient or not. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if that stings you, but that's just like right to the heart, right? Like, I want you to persist in this. You're like, okay, 
even if it's not convenient. Oh, man. I was kind of trying to make my own definition of persistent that I could, like, give to you. It's like, no, it's not going to be convenient for you. That's like the definition of persistence. You have to persist because it's not convenient. There's no persistence if it's convenient, right? Like, you don't have to persist to get a pop at Circle K. There's no persistence. There's signs everywhere, and you walk in, and the machine gives you ice and pop and a lid, and you go up, and the card takes the money, and you walk out, and it's like, wow, I have a pop. That was amazing. It was completely convenient. You didn't have to go, like, find water and boil it in a creek and then take the cocoa bean and boil it so you could have some syrup and add some sugar. And What if you had to persist for your pop, right? What if, what if Coke was your thing? It's like, dude, I, I have to have a Coke. And I can't find it anywhere. I'm going to have to make it. I'm going to have to grow plants and make Coca-Cola, grow my own sugar. Got to have this. None of you would drink pop. You'd switch to Pepsi in a heartbeat. Oh, oh, Coke is the best. I could never have Pepsi. And I could never have Big K ever. Until you have to grow your own Coca-Cola, and then you're like, yeah, Big K is awesome. And we're the same way. And Paul knows that that's going to be hard for Timothy as a young man. He's like, it's hard to persist, Timothy. We want the easy way, the most efficient way. What flashes the biggest and makes the biggest splash, not what's truly faithful. And he's saying, I, you've got to persist in this. And then he says, he's, look, Paul repeats himself twice. Whenever someone is writing scripture and they repeat themselves, it's because God asked them to. And I don't know if you have parents, grandparents, who will repeat something to you and you know, like, after they've repeated it, it's like, okay, they're really serious. Like, the first time you're like, la, 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 and then they're like, listen to me. And you're like, what? And then they say it again. You're like, oh, okay. He says, again, Proclaim the message. Teach about this message that there is a God that we're going to have to stand before and he has provided a way of escape through his son, through the sacrifice, just like the Old Testament, through the sacrifice, through your faith, through his grace, and he is going to come and he is going to bring this incredible message of hope to the world. See, our problem is we don't want to believe we live in a broken world. Everything says it's broken. But I want to pretend like it's not. I want to just pretend like there's no 1% in the brownies. 99% is pretty good, so I just keep, keep mowing down. And then what happens is one day you find out that there's 1% in there, and you have to make a decision. What am I going to do knowing what's in there? What am I going to do knowing what's in this heart that I thought was so pure and so good, and something just came out of me, and I don't know where it came from? What am I going to do with that? It's exactly what he says. And he says, listen, rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. Can I just tell you that I was, as I was studying this message this week, one of the things I think I've recognized, especially with millennials, what we've done is we've flipped this entire passage around backwards. We're being very patient and teaching. We're encouraging them. We sometimes correct them. They don't know what a rebuke is to save their life. Paul says you got to rebuke. And you have to walk with them and correct. See how their response is to the rebuke. 
then if they've been corrected and they want to be corrected, you can now encourage them even more. And you can have incredible patience as you teach them and as they struggle. See, that's the gospel message. People love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But they don't like the following verses where it says that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to give the world life. And then he goes, because the world was already condemned. See, we don't believe that anymore. We've let a generation of people believe that this world's not a condemned world. That we can have our best life now here in America if we just elect the right person. Just get the right leaders. Don't worry about the 1% in their life. We're looking for the 99% that benefits me. On both sides of the aisle. And God says, I'm a 100% God. I am 100% holy. What are you going to do about that? And he says, that's why the message of the gospel and the grace he gives to us that we can never measure up. And he says, I would like to give you my son as the payment for your sin. Now, what's your response to that? And then I rebuke people lovingly to say, it doesn't look like you're believing that Jesus really is who he says he is and that you're going to meet him one day. You're kind of not living that way. I think there's some things you might want to correct. Could I help you with that? And I would hope that you, people would do that to me. They would challenge me in my life. And that they would do that and they would encourage me and encourage you with patience because we're a mess. And just when you think you have it together, it's like God peels off another layer, right? It's like an onion, you know, the outer layer doesn't make your eyes water too much and then you keep going into it and it's like by the time you're like, <laughs> and you're, you know, you can't take it. God's the same way. He's gentle, he peels off layer at a time and it just gets deeper and deeper to us and we can't ignore it and it's just like, oh. And the whole time he's like, it's all right. Just like your family, right? Like if you're peeling an onion, they have a lot of mercy for you. Typically there's a lot of sarcasm. You okay, buddy? You all right there? You cry, you know, they pretend encouragement, sarcasm. If you're really crying, they're like, rub some dirt on it. You know, Peyton Manning. It's beautiful what he tells Timothy here. Then he says, for the time, look at this is key. He says, Timothy, look, I've just told you all this, but as for you, but as for you, I solemnly charge you. He says, but. The time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. They're not going to tolerate it. You know what a doctrine is? A doctrine is a set of beliefs held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. You are, you are indoctrinated every day. IU indoctrinates you. Your employer indoctrinates you. Everyone all day long is saying, here are the set of beliefs I need you to live by. Do it. And if you don't, there are consequences. You will flunk out of college and we will keep your money. Thank you. You will get fired from your job and not have an income. And yet when it comes to church, we're like, why are they judging me? Did they actually try to help you? Because most of the time the employers don't even help you. They're just like, you're fired. Or IU's like, sorry, you flunked out, too bad. Maybe we'll give you academic probation and say we're going to help you, but we really don't. He says, look at this, they'll not tolerate it. Can I just tell you, we live in a day and age where people will not tolerate you telling them something spiritually that's true about the Bible. It's an argument every time. Well, they believe and they do this and they do. Let's drill down for a moment and ask what God's heart is. Let's not look at the denominational lines and all that stuff 
off the bat. Let's really drill down to say, what do the scriptures say about this God? Not what does my heritage say, my family say, any of those things, but what does the Bible actually say about this? And where does the Bible not speak to things? I've said this before. The Bible doesn't say what diet you should be on. You could be on the Daniel diet, right? You could be on the Old Testament diet, which Daniel didn't eat the meat, was sacrificed to idols, and you you eat the meat and do it. You can be on the New Testament diet. Peter saw the sheep come out and said, well, the Greeks can eat, and they can eat pork and all that. But nobody wants, like I said last week, the John the Baptist diet. Nobody. Nobody wants locusts and honey. Why? Because I just don't see that as profitable. Listen, locusts, there's a lot of locusts in some parts of the world. You'd eat like a king. You'd be full all day long. Plague of locusts come, you'd be like, everybody else is panicking. You're like, I'm hungry, baby. You're sitting a table down, swarming, and you're like stabbing them out of the air. Ah, I mean, because you're on the locusts and honey diet. He's looking and he's saying, look, everybody's got these beliefs, and are we opening the Bible to say, hold on, let's check that here first. Or is that just your tradition? And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we have to have grace for one another and say, I, I, it's not an essential conviction level belief. But just like your family has different ways you do things that maybe another family has, it's the same way with the church. That there are certain churches that do things sometimes a little bit differently than another church. They still believe the gospel. They still believe all the core essentials. They believe this book. They believe this doctrine. But maybe they decide, you know, we want to take communion every Sunday because it's just that important to us. Where we take communion about six to eight times a year because we want to make it important to us. Okay, so both people believe communion's important. Yes. Oh, goody gumdrops. I can't go to that church if they don't serve communion every Sunday. I mean, I'm not going if they don't serve it quarterly, like according to the liturgical calendar. I just can't do it. Really? Can you imagine telling your mom that? Mom, I just can't eat unless my spaghetti is here and my sauce is here and my meat's here and it's all perfect and, you know. You know what my mom used to do with that? She'd like mix it on purpose just to frustrate me. Put it all together. Like I'd always say, my mom loves sauerkraut and wieners. <laughs> Sour, it stinks up the whole house. I mean, it's just like, is there anything good? In, there, I guess there is, but I'm like, ugh. And she would always look at me, and she put sauerkraut and wieners on my plate both. And she'd say, you don't have to eat the sauerkraut, but I'm not cooking it different. You can pick the hot dogs out. I'm like, Mom, do you understand how much better those little sausage or hot dogs would take if they weren't in sauerkraut boiled for 30 minutes? She's like, yep, I do. Eat them. Love you. She was gracious enough not to make me eat the kraut. <laughs> she goes on and he says look they'll multiply teachers for themselves in other words they're going to look for churches that fit what they believe not ask does this church go back to what God believes can I tell you that's our culture today people running around saying I'm trying to find the church that, that works for me that has the right worship that has the right this or the right that and you got to believe that God in heaven's going are you seriously so then you wonder why there's a generation of people that are picking spouses based on all the peripheries, but not the heart. Based on all the hobbies and all we have in common, not do you truly want to live for Christ together 
and lay down our lives and persist when it's not convenient. Because that's what I'm probably going to have to ask you to do if I lead our family. Boy, that would like end a lot of dating relationships off the bat. Goes on and it says, look at this. Because they have an itch to hear something new. I'm amazed at the number of Christian books on the bookshelf at the bookstore. I'm also amazed by the number of Christians that have read a lot of those books, but not their own Bible. That man, when a new book comes out and it gets popular, everybody's talking about it. But I've not seen anybody get really excited about 2 Timothy in I don't know how many decades. I found a new book. Read it with me. 2 Timothy. Oh, that's just 2 Timothy, you know. I found a new diet, the Daniel diet. Oh, buy it by the millions. Amazing. Is it wrong to read books? No, it's not. It's actually good to, to educate yourself. But the question is, why are you reading it? Are you reading it because you truly want to understand your God and understand how it connects to Scripture? Or are you reading it because you've already decided not to follow Scripture and you're finding a book to back up what you want? You've got to be real careful because our motives could be that 1%. And Paul says, but as for you, Timothy, he says, they will turn away from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to myths. You know what a myth is? Let me read this for you. Dictionary definition, Webster's. A traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically, typically involving supernatural beings or events, widely held false beliefs or ideas. When he says a myth, you know what he's saying? Stories. They will turn aside from the book in a heartbeat to believe a story that someone has over the book. That is our culture. Matter of fact, we can accidentally train people on evangelism to make their testimony bigger than God and his word. You want to know how I know that? When you hear someone tell their testimony... And they spend like 20 minutes talking about what a sinner, terrible person they were. And then they say, except Jesus. You just bragged about your sin for like 20 minutes. I would have liked to, you spent like 20 minutes bragging about your incredible God that you now know. And I think he would have appreciated that more as well. Again, we need to share our stories, but they need to be in the context of God's story from his word, not what we think we believe. Because let me tell you, the reason we have Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and all the other stuff, the reason we have them is because people believed in a myth. And you have to decide, was their myth right or our myth right? And they don't match up. If you read their texts and you read our texts, they don't work together at all. Sure, you can go through and pick the stuff out you like, like Thomas Jefferson did, and X out all the words about any miracle that Jesus ever did and say, here's the new Jeffersonian Bible for people. And God in heaven's going, oh, you're missing me for your own selfish desires. He goes on and it says this, but as for you, there it is again. Be serious about everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. He looks at Timothy. He's like, I know I'm saying some hard things, but you're going to have to be serious about things. Does that mean we can't have fun? You got to be the serious, stoic person all the time? No. My goodness gracious, if you will just take a moment and read the Bible for some humor, there's some seriously funny stuff in there. Like, there's some stuff that you just have to snicker and laugh, sometimes belly laugh. Like, it's just like, you read it, and you're like, are you serious? 
I heard a pastor say once, I mean, a duck-built platypus, right? That's just funny. That's just, that's the funniest looking animal ever. It's, I think God was just like, hey, I'll slap some stuff together and I'll laugh. Ha, <laughs> there's a platypus. Look at that thing. What is it? I don't know. It's called a platypus. That's God. He says, look, be serious about the things that matter. And it's going to be hard if you do that because there's a world that's wanting to use the 1% and raise the 1% above the 99%. There's a world that doesn't want to deal with this. And it's going to be hard for you if you actually rebuke and correct and teach and encourage and be patient with people. That's hard. He goes on and he says this. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, he says. I'm already being poured out. And the time for my departure is close. He knows he's coming to the end of his life. He's, he's going to die. And then he says this. I love this. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Look at this. In the Old Testament, when they would do an offering, part of the offering, whether it was a lamb or a ram or whatever, was a drink offering. They would take the wine and they would pour it around the sacrifice, sometimes over the sacrificial fire. They would pour it on the altar and it would make a fragrant aroma. It's alcohol, it would burn. It would make a fragrant aroma. There's another passage where Paul says, I want to be a fragrant aroma. Last week we talked about being farts for Jesus, right? Do you remember that? And we need to be a fragrant aroma to summits the aroma of death, to summits the aroma of life. Yes, farts for Jesus, okay? That's what we need to be. And so they would always pour this drink offering on the altar and it would smell. So you would know like, oh, I just smelled the drink offering. The drink offering's been poured out for us now. And there should be a celebration and, and a forgiveness and look at what God's done. And Paul's saying, I'm being poured out like that on Jesus. I'm being poured out like a drink offering like the Old Testament. Like Paul isn't saying this like, oh, I'm being poured out as a drink. He's saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. This is awesome. I'm like that stuff. I'm the wine. I, I get to be that. Wow. That's incredible that God would consider me worthy to just burn up on the fire. Make a great aroma for people. And he goes, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Who doesn't want that said about them? He goes on and he says, and look at this. This is what Jesus said in Luke 22. Jesus said in the same way he also took the cup after supper. We're going we're gonna to do communion next week. And when Jesus took the communion cup, when he instituted the new covenant of communion, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. That means it's being poured out on the altar to be a fragrant aroma for you. That's how much I love you, that I'm going to be the high priest for you that that earthly high priest can never be. And it's going to be my own blood, not some animal's blood, not just a symbol of wine or grape juice. It's going to be me. That's how much I care. And that's been the plan since Genesis chapter 3. Since the beginning of the book, this has been the plan to get ready for this. And he says, John 19.34 says, But to one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side when he was on the cross with a spear, and at once the blood and water poured out. That would have been at the moment of Passover when they were pouring the drink offering on the altar. 
He died at that moment. It was the close of the day when they would finally say, put out the offering, bring. That was the moment. And his blood is being poured out. And he's dead. I mean, you talk about incredible how the Old Testament matches with the New. It's beautiful because he says, but as for you, I want you to know these things because this God is so incredible. He loves you that much. He's worthy of your life. This is reserved for me in the future. Look at this. Paul's so confident. This is why you know he wasn't depressed when he was saying this because now he's stoked. He's like on cloud nine after saying this. Oh, and there is reserved for me a crown, the future crown of righteousness. That, that when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, all the sin's gone. I am going to crown you as one of my children. You are an heir with me. Not because of what you've done, but because what I did and you trusted in what I did for you, which the Lord, the righteous judge, the one who judged rightly when no one else does, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who loved his appearing. Are you longing for his appearing? If you are longing for his appearing and you are surrendered to him saying, help me, get ready for you. And you, you may struggle tomorrow doing that. That's okay, there's grace. But if that's your heart, you can be confident that when you stand before him someday, just like when a bride, the groom doesn't, the bride doesn't walk down the aisle and the groom's like, oh crud, never mind, and walk away. You don't get to that point. Does it happen sometimes? Yes, and all of us go, oh, that's horrible, right? Like we all wanna kill the guy. Like just, just beat him right now, that's ridiculous. It's that moment whenever I do a wedding, whenever I'm at a wedding, I never look at the bride. I always look at the groom's face every time because it's just amazing to watch his face light up, watch him pass out and bounce off the floor. Watch Something's going to happen with him in that moment, and I know it, and I just want to see it. I'm like, you know, everybody's looking at it that way, and I'm like looking at the guy like I'm some weirdo. And you just watch his face, and I've never seen a guy go like this. Not once, ever, because they're ready for the day. That's what this is supposed to be. Paul's like, I'm ready to get up there, and the veil's going to be torn back, and God's going to say, I love you. Enter your rest. Let's go. And I know that's hard for us to, as men to see ourselves as a bride, and it's not a homosexual reference there, okay? It's just the picture God used to describe, because he also says in heaven there's neither male nor female anymore. There is here because we need to learn to submit to one another. We need to learn how to live in a lane to do what's right and embrace who we are and our identity in him, not the identity we make up. But when we get to heaven, there's no more identity struggle. When we get to heaven, our identity is fully in Christ, absolutely, and the crown is on, and we're like, wow. But watch what our response is going to be to getting the crown. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor to the one seated on the throne, this is Revelation, this is John getting a picture of heaven. The one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, these are the guys that were way better at their faith than you and me. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, that's Jesus. They fall down, they worship the one who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and our God, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power because all you have created because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. It doesn't say, thanks so much for all you've done to me. 
That is so minuscule. You're like, dude, that, I don't even care about me right now. You're awesome. Here you go. And there, can you imagine the scene? These men that you thought are these incredible men that of faith, and they are flat on their face, taking off their beautiful crowns and just throwing them. And they're like, oh, we're nothing. This picture of worship. It's like, that's incredible. Not, look at my crown. I did a really good job, didn't I, Peter? I've got one more jewel than you. Like, that's not what's going to happen in heaven. That's what we do here. This is going to be a beautiful picture. He goes on. He says to Timothy as we wrap up, he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Why? Because he's going to die. He's going to die. He's like, Timothy, I'm being serious here. I'm excited about what's coming. I'm excited about my future hope. I'm excited that I've gotten you ready, that I've written this letter, that I'm still helping you get ready to be the man of God you need to be in the world. But can I just tell you, man, make every effort to come to me soon. I'm hurting, for Demas has deserted me. Ever had someone desert you? Maybe you were the person that deserted someone. How painful that is? Paul feels that pain too. And he looks and he says, because he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. He loved the world more than he loved the appearing. He loves the things of this world more than he's excited about the works of ministry we get to do to give our lives. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and he doesn't mean they, they deserted him. That's not what he's saying. He's just making a statement that they went there. Okay? Only Luke is with me. That's the author, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Bring Mark with you, for he's youthful, useful to me in the, in the ministry. This is a really cool statement. I've preached this before when we went through another book, when we went through Acts. But John Mark was the guy that Paul said he refused to take with him, and it split Barnabas and Mark to go plant churches, and Paul and Silas went and planted churches. And at the end of Paul's life, he's thinking back through his relationships, just like you will do and I will do if we have time at the end of our life and don't get snuffed out quickly. As he's thinking back through his relationships, he remembers John Mark, and he remembered how hard, how hard the rebuke was on John Mark that he needed to motivate him because John Mark deserted Paul on the mission field. And he needed to be rebuked. And he let Barnabas be the encouragement and handed him off. And at this moment, he's like, you be sure wherever John Mark is, find him. You let him know to come, that he is useful, that he is restored, that I have seen him respond, and he is ready to meet the king of kings. And man, that excites me. Man, make sure he knows that. And he goes on, and he says, I have sent Thycius to Ephesus. In other words, that's the guy carrying the letter right now. In other words, I've sent your replacement. You can leave your people in good hands. Thycius has got this. You come visit me. And he says, when you come... I love this. this. Bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Like I, just, this is like a normal letter. He's like, oh, I forgot something, right? Like you're writing, you're writing this beautiful letter, like, oh, and by the way, like you, you know how you had those like random thought? This was one of those. Like, whoop, whoop. That's what Paul's doing. He says, oh, and be sure you bring the cloak. It's also winter, which we find out in a minute, which is why Paul wants the cloak. He's like cold. And then he says, the Lord will, and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. You know, we say we're not supposed to talk badly about people. It's not true. We're not supposed to condemn people. When, he's, when he mentions Alexander and Demas, the reason he does it is to protect the church 
and to hopefully rebuke them so that they'll change. That's why he mentions them. That's why their names have been written down for all of eternity. And wouldn't it be cool if we get to heaven one day and both of these guys are there because of this letter? Wouldn't it be awesome if we get to heaven one day and we go, wait, you're Alexander the coppersmith. Yeah, Paul's letter hit me hard. They read it in every church for like ever. <laughs> Goes on and he says, the Lord will repay him. Watch out for him yourself because he's strongly opposed our words. He strongly opposed the scripture. At my first defense, Peter, he's talking about his legal defense. He was in Rome where he had to go before Caesar because he appealed to Caesar. This is the Supreme Court. He says, at my first Supreme Court appearance, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. You've given your entire life to God. You've poured your life into these men, all these names he mentioned, and into Timothy. And at your lowest moment, at your hardest moment, you look around and no one is there for you. Does that story sound familiar in Scripture? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Why do we think that we won't someday end up like that if Jesus and Paul both did? That there's going to come a day when all we have and all we long for is him. There's nothing else. I'm not going to get to heaven and be like, where's Susan? I'm going to be so consumed with him, I'm not even going to think about earth. Do I love my bride? Absolutely. But in comparison to him, it should pale. Goes on and he says, look at this. May it not be counted against them. <sighs> Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. <sighs> what a man of God. In his lowest moment, his final hour, he's like, oh, don't count it against them, Timothy. D give them grace. It's hard, man. It was only John the Apostle at the foot of the cross. Don't count it against them. And then he says, look at this. But the Lord stood with me. Can you imagine actually, like, actually believing that? You're at your lowest moment. You're before the Supreme Court. It did not go well. Everyone's deserted you. And at that moment, God like speaks and says, man, I am with you. I really don't care that no one's here. I got God. We're good. And you know what? I wish they were here because then they would see my God. And they're missing it. He goes on and he says, look at this. So that the proclamation might be fully made through me and all the Gentiles might hear. In other words, God took everything away from me so that the proclamation that Christ made to the Jews on the cross, Paul says, my life now looks to the Gentiles like Christ's life looked on the cross. I ended up in the same place as my Savior. Yes. He goes on and he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He, there's no doubt. Paul is like, I can't rescue myself. The Lord is going to rescue me and he will deliver me and he will do this and I will be in heaven and I don't have to have any doubts of his future kingdom. Let me ask you, but as for you, do you have that confidence? 
If today was your last day, if this was your last moment, do you have the confidence to know with 100% certainty that you would be with your Savior? Not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done for you. See, that's the point. He invites us to be betrothed, which is how it works in our culture, to be engaged. And then he asks us to get ready for consummation. We're living as betrothed people to God, waiting for the moment of being in the family together. That's the scripture. That's from the Genesis all the way through. And he says, he's going to bring me safely, not into this earthly kingdom. This earthly kingdom is going to kill me which is what happens. Paul gets killed. The heavenly kingdom, I'm safe forever. And then he says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Not my glory, not the, his glory. And then he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesimus, or Onesiphorus. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. By the way, that's a cool verse. It means Paul couldn't heal everybody. He's calling Trophimus a faithful brother who he had to leave sick. What, did, Troph did he not have enough faith? No, he was just sick. <laughs> Sometimes you don't get healed, you die of stuff. Paul just mentions that there. And then it goes on, he says, make every effort to come before winter. Why? Because I don't have a cloak. <laughs> you have it. <laughs> That's why I said get it, I'm cold. <laughs> and then he says, the Lord be with your spirit. He says, inside you, Timothy, may you know the Lord is with you. And then he says, grace be with you. Not you better get here, you better measure up. He says, and remember how I started the book about the grace of God that he forgives, that he does it all. Grace be with you, Timothy. You're going to need it. You're going to need it. And man, I want his full grace to be with you. Because if you understand his full grace, you will respond in gratitude. And when you don't, you'll go back to his grace and ask him to help you to be grateful for forgiveness another time and another time and another time and another time and another time. And you're going to do that and come to a place where you get to heaven and say, I can't do anything. It's all you and that's it. That's this book. That's the Bible. That's the whole Testament sacrificial system. That's the New Testament, New Covenant of Christ. And he says, Timothy, but as for you, you need to take this seriously. It may be your last day. And I know it's going to be my last day.